kicked us off for the series uh, last Sunday, but actually today we have uh, Cindy giving us uh, Pat, <laughs> the message today. And make sure you also come next week because we have one of our leaders um, giving us his perspective. And I think this is really cool because when we talk about work, you know, everyone's experience is a little different. And it's great to see how God speaks to us through different um, vocations. So uh, let's turn to our passage for today, which is from Galatians chapter 4. If you can follow along on the screen or on your Bible if you have that with you. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time, the set time had finally come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his capital son into our hearts, the spirit who called out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Well, uh, when we first moved to the Silicon Valley over a decade ago, uh, the playful, all-inclusive Google campus culture was still pretty new, and the company was much smaller at the time, so it was all very exciting. My brother and a couple of college friends had just gotten jobs at Google, so we found ourselves over at the Quad and the Googleplex many times for lunch. I have all these photos of Caleb toddling around in his little Android shirt with his cousin and you know, playing in the sand of the volleyball courts and sitting in the cute, colorful Adirondack chairs. I remember how proud my parents looked when they would come for a visit and go to lunch with uh, Richard at work, and you know, their son could now buy them lunch, except he didn't even have to pay for it because Google has perks. It's like an Asian parent's dream. Uh, it's not just Google, of course. There's Meta and LinkedIn and all the epic snack kiosks and game rooms and gyms. I remember the first time I ever experienced special parking for expectant moms was on the Facebook campus. It was like I was expecting my second at the time, and it made me feel so taken care of. As a consultant, I've had the opportunity to visit workplaces of all different sizes, large, beautiful headquarters of Fortune 500 retail brands decorated just like their catalogs, except in real life. Small fashion startups with open floor plans designed to maximize ambiance and light with plants everywhere and racks of beautiful clothes and amazing coffee and happy hours twice a week. It goes beyond the office environments, of course. Work perks like childcare and wellness programs, laundry and, again, all the food, working together to create a space that's not only nice to work in, but intended to generate a sense of belonging. 
of trying to be our life's central place of gravity. When a workplace provides so many of our day-to-day -day needs, why wouldn't we spend most of our waking hours devoted to work? It's a rhetorical question. Not everyone in our, com our community works in offices, of course, but the centrality of work, the gravity that it holds in our lives, and the depth of what it asks from us runs just as strong, perhaps even stronger in industries like healthcare or education or public safety, particularly in the last two years. There's a deep meaning and purpose in meeting society's biggest needs, and it has required so much. We live in a culture and a generation that is very focused on work. Carolyn Chen, a sociologist at UC Berkeley, calls it the American theocracy of work a collective worship of work that we hold as a society. We are willing to sacrifice for and surrender to it because it provides a sense of belonging, meaning, and purpose that we are wired to search for. She writes that work is replacing, and in some cases, even taking the form of religion among many of America's professionals. Companies are not just economic institutions. They've become meaning-making institutions that offer a gospel of fulfillment and divine purpose in a capitalist cosmos. We're in a series about thriving in work this month because it's clearly a need in our community, one that's always been there but has been exacerbated and brought to the surface by the dynamics and pressures of the pandemic in ways that we cannot and do not want to ignore. We're looking at a passage today in the book of Galatians that provides clear principles about claiming our freedom in Christ that I believe can be applied in powerful ways to our work. The freedom Galatians writes about, is written about, is a freedom from legalism, a strong defense of the true gospel based on faith in Jesus alone against a false gospel that is trying to put external performance or appearances on top of the hope that we have in Jesus. The context for the book is false teachers have been infiltrating the early churches in Galatia, discrediting the apostle Paul who started these churches, sharing a false message that in addition to following Jesus, people need to be circumcised and to follow the law in order to earn their way to heaven. Paul comes out swinging, expounding on his authority and his credentials up front much more than he does in other letters, because the gospel, the truth of what Jesus has done for us, is at stake. In many ways, as followers of Jesus here in the Silicon Valley, we also find ourselves defending our faith against a false gospel, that ultimate identity, meaning, and purpose can be found in our work. There is much we can learn from the principles from this passage. First, God has a spiritual enemy in this world that takes good things and twists them to enslave us. Paul writes about elemental spiritual forces of this world in verse 3 that make us feel like slaves. The word elemental here has a double meaning. It's referring to evil elements or evil spirits and also to something basic and elementary, meaning that before Jesus came, humans were subject to the basic cause and effect of the world. We get what we deserve. This is the way that most of the world operates. You do a good job at something, you get promoted. 
you level up, you gain acceptance among your peers. You don't do a good job and there are consequences. It is not a bad principle in and of itself. Consequences are good, they're needed in parenting, in management, in creating order. But it's the principle of the world, not the principle by which God invites us to relate to him. It's the opposite of the grace on which our faith is founded. And it's not hard to see how the basic cause and effect algorithm can be twisted in many parts of our lives to make us feel trapped. Paul is illustrating that just as a child is underage and will be ordered around and disciplined according to the will of the guardian over him, all of humanity was similarly restrained by the law before Jesus came. The law or these commandments that we are given to follow in order to create order in our world is from God intended for our good in order to reveal the ways that we fall short and to prepare us to understand our need for Jesus, a means by which we might better appreciate freedom. But there are weak and miserable forces, verse nine, evil forces that seek to twist this law such that it makes us see our brokenness without hope and maybe even drives us to feeling like there is no way out. How many of us have felt enslaved by our work in one way or another, like there is no way out? God intended work to be good, for it to be a part of our flourishing, joining him in the creation and the restoration of this world. But because our world is broken, it can get twisted into something that binds us, that creates a lack of freedom. Paul is talking to us in this passage about that lack of freedom, recognizing that before we knew God, verse 8, we had a tendency to give too much weight to idolize those who by nature are not gods. There are so many potential ways that idols and the forces of this world can enslave us in our work. It's by no means an exhaustive list, but just a few might include the need for status or success. If we're used to always doing well, if we're wired for it, or the value of it has been driven into us since childhood, we may find that instances of not leveling up, not being chosen, or just not seeing results can lead to a serious lack of thriving in our work. It's normal to be disappointed and excellence in our work is good and honoring to God. But if we find that we will sacrifice and surrender to it in ways that make it incredibly hard to draw the right boundaries for rest, for prioritizing relationships, for making healthy macro choices for our careers, we may have an idol that the enemy is using regularly to enslave us to our work. Parental expectations and generational idols can also play a big part. Some of us may be in our line of work because of heavy parental influence. Maybe we know a friend who went or is going to law school or med school or grad school because it makes their parents happy and not because of personal discernment or interest. Parental guidance is necessary and good, but there's a fine line between healthy influence and heavy expectation. We can love and honor our parents while being honest about these dynamics. Organizational structures can also lead to difficult work dynamics. Certain industries have built-in requirements of heavy upfront sacrifice in order to get anywhere, like medical residency or analysts at investment banks or management consultancies. 
my two years of consulting after college were very much that pay your dues kind of work, never being able to commit to anything outside of work with much certainty because if my managing director put slides on my desk to finish that night, I wasn't gonna make it to any dinner plans. I had to finish the deck. But moving up the ladder and landing in management doesn't structurally free us. The dynamics just change and grow arguably heavier as responsibility grows. Managing others well takes a lot of energy and investment, full of its own host of people-pleasing and performance idols. These types of work idols and structural difficulties have always existed with our work. Yet coming out of the pandemic, there has also been a clear trend of deeper struggle with work, acute anxiety, depression, burnout, lots of press on quiet quitting, and really just a lot of actual quitting. Job satisfaction surveys at record lows pointing strongly to a general malaise in our culture when it comes to work. Some industries like healthcare or education have had not just more work because of COVID, but more complex work with fewer people to do the work and so many are just straight up burned out. In other industries, the dispersed work from home culture that COVID created has made drawing boundaries between work and life all that much harder. COVID has revealed yet new ways that work becomes entangling and the increasing claim it has on not just our time, but our mind share, our relationships, and maybe even our souls. So now that I've made us sufficiently gloomy, the second principle we see from the text is that Jesus came to redeem and free us from the forces of this world. We are told in verse 8 that before knowing God, we were slaves to those who by nature are not God. Everything we just discussed and so much more. Then it says, but, we love buts in scripture, something really good must be coming. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Knowing God choosing to follow Jesus, and even more importantly, being known and loved by God. These free us from feeling enslaved. But how? Verse 4 says, at a set time, over 2,000 years ago, when the people of the ancient Greek and Roman worlds were finding their stone idols not all that fulfilling, much in the same way we might find our work idols not that fulfilling, when they were sufficiently hungry for a real and lasting message of hope. It was at that time God sent his son Jesus, born of a woman, meaning he was both fully human and fully divine, to live a perfect life under the law, one that humans had long realized we could not do, and because of that was uniquely positioned to redeem us and offer us freedom. What does it mean to redeem? Economically, to gain or regain a possession of something or someone in exchange for payment. Jesus paid, oh, he paid. He paid for all the ugly ways we treat others, all our broken relationships, all our messed up actions and thoughts by going to the cross, by bearing all of our issues and failures as managers, 
as employees, as parents and spouses and friends, bearing all these broken places on his perfect body to give us an opportunity to be seen as perfect in the eyes of God. In a similar way, we are each on a spiritual journey, and God prepares us through experiencing the brokenness of this world, such that we long for the freedom that only Christ can provide. Maybe you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe it's been a long time since you've talked with Jesus or acknowledged your relationship with him. Perhaps through difficulties at work or in a relationship or just dealing with life after COVID, your heart has been prepared in a similar way. We're so glad you're here. And if we can help you to take a next step in relationship with Jesus, wherever you are on your journey, we would love to do that. We'd love to walk with you. Please let us know. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This freedom that is being spoken of is a freedom in Christ, meaning when we make a decision to follow Jesus, we are freed from living a life based on our own effort or merit. It doesn't mean that we will never struggle or that our desires will be immediately set right. No, the brokenness and elemental forces of this world run strong. They're still here. We live among them constantly. It also doesn't mean it's a freedom to do whatever we want according to whatever old desire we have, like our society would like us to define freedom. God tells us this is a weak and miserable kind of freedom that doesn't lead to ultimate peace and joy. So what is this freedom in Christ? It is a freedom of knowing that we cannot earn our acceptance by, to God and into eternity, which means we cannot earn our worth or our, our value through our work. It translates into a freedom based on knowing, be, knowing and being known by God, that we are loved and accepted and working with excellence out of that freedom, not to earn it. One way we might claim our freedom in this way is to be intentional about how we rest. David will be teaching about this in two weeks, so we'll only touch on it lightly here. But the Bible teaches us we are to stop and enjoy the results of our work. Do you have a day of the week when you declare freedom by not thinking about your vocational work, where you're enjoying what God has given you relationally, in creation, recreationally? If you're a full-time parent, do you have a window where you're not in charge of your kids? A regular intentional rhythm of stopping our work is a profound declaration of freedom from its enslaving dynamics. It's a declaration of the truth that we are not what we do and that God does not need us. It's not easy, but we can claim this freedom because our identity is changed by the cross. Not only does God redeem us the way a slave might generously be purchased and freed at great cost, he goes beyond that to make us a part of his family. It's completely unexpected and helps us understand just how deeply he loves us. When we make a decision to follow Jesus, we receive adoption to sonship. We are not only free, we are God's child and an heir to the kingdom of God. These are massive words with hugely consequential meaning. We belong, our future is secure, and we are deeply known and loved.
Our culture talks a lot about identity. Our neighborhood school does a program with a local Y called Project Cornerstone, where parent volunteers come in once a month to read books on various socio-emotional topics and talk to the class about it. It's a great way for a working parent to be regularly involved in your kid's classroom because it's once a month and you can schedule it. It's, as a reader, you can also direct the narrative, which in public schools is a great way to be intentionally participation as a parent, as a Christ follower. This month's topic was around different ethnic backgrounds and identities, so the exercise was an identity map with a bunch of different bubbles in it, where kids are supposed to write down different parts of their identity. Question for all of us, if we had a paper in front of us right now where we had to draw bubbles of different sizes and write down identity words, words like engineer, manager, teacher, doctor, artist, father, daughter, how big would your work-related bubble be? And how big would your child of God bubble be? Who are we outside of our work? If our title and level and accomplishments were all stripped away right now in this moment, how would we define ourselves? More importantly, how would we understand our value? The work culture of our generation and this place where we live is so strong that it is literally named for what it has accomplished and produced. The silicon chips that have changed the way the world works and communicates are the reason we live in a place called Silicon Valley. People move from all over the world to come here for work. It is therefore only natural that one of the first questions we ask one another when we're getting to know each other is, what do you do? Where do you work? We look one another up on LinkedIn, and maybe you look up someone's level or their title to help you understand where they're at in their career. It's a core part of how we identify ourselves and how we identify one another. Asking this question is natural and good, but if we're honest, we also know how much we allow our answer to this question to define us. Like it or not, there is a sense of value and worth the forces of this world try to ascribe to our external performance and status, leading us to be trapped by yet more performance, to attain yet more results and yet more status. The counterintuitive conclusion is in order to truly thrive in our work, we must find our ultimate identity, belonging, and sense of meaning outside of it. Finding things that these things at work are not bad. Having a mission and purpose given to us at work, that's good. But if they are the main places we find our identity and our value, work will inevitably become ensnaring in a way that prevents us from operating with freedom. Ironically, it is the supernatural knowledge of who we are outside of the broken structures of our organizations that will actually free us to thrive in our work, to join God in redeeming what is broken in this world, including doing good work and being a preserving, life-giving force in the relationships we hold at work. It is knowing and experiencing that we are beloved and accepted as a child of God that breaks the chains again and again of the performative shackles that this world tries to put on us every day. I wrestled hard with this text over the last week. 
I had one of those weeks where it felt impossible to do everything on my plate. At work, as a coach with our church plant incubator, as a mom, as a wife, as a friend, somewhere I was going to disappoint somebody. As I was writing, I literally felt shackled by the fear of not doing any of it well, of fearing failure and displeasing people. And that's how I knew that the message was first for me. I asked God to remind me of how he loves me separate from what I do, to free me to work in a way that trusts him with the results. This is a daily wrestle for me, and I imagine for many of you as well. One big way we can stand firm in our identity as a child of God is to recognize that we have the Holy Spirit within us. When we receive the gift of what Jesus did for us by faith, we're told that God sends his spirit, verse 6, into our hearts to provide assurance and experience of freedom, even as we live in a world that is broken. We have the help and constant presence of the spirit with us. The spirit cries out intimately in our hearts, Abba, Father, meaning we have immediate access to God in prayer. We are constantly encouraged toward a free, joyful, secure relationship with God, the way that a child might run to greet their father, carefree, safe, and loved. One of my favorite parts of being a parent in this stage of life is talking with my kids late at night and early in the morning. It's in those moments that their heart seems to be most exposed and the real stuff tends to come pouring out. For one of them, these conversations happen more late at night when his sister is asleep and can't hear what's going on. Things that happen in the classroom or at practice that week tend to come out in those moments. For the other, she still jumps into bed with me early in the morning sometimes. She did it on Friday, just a couple minutes before the alarm went off, and told me about a nightmare she had. Then we giggled about how ridiculous it was, and by holding her, I didn't have to say much to communicate that she was secure. I imagine that's one of the ways God offers us his security, too. Late at night and early in the morning, when the world is still and our hearts and minds are more exposed, with the help of God's word in prayer, even a few moments in the quiet at night or in the morning before chaos ensues, sitting like a child at the feet of Jesus can drastically change the way we see our identities and how we relate to others. The spirit is with us during the day too, while we're at work, nudging and reminding us at key moments that our identity is secure, reminding us we can call out, Abba, Father, when we're in heated meetings, when impossible decisions need to be made, when someone needs to be brought to account, when a project doesn't go the way that we hoped, when a coworker is manipulating credit or blame. The spirit inside is reminding us, hey you, this isn't all there is. Remember who you are and who you represent. Yeah, this, this person, this coworker, this vendor, they're pretty messed up, just as you are messed up. And you were once enslaved by believing your worth was tied up in only what you could accomplish at work. But remember, child of God, you have an inheritance that goes way beyond what's happening here. And I've put you here on purpose to learn to stand firm in your freedom and perhaps even to offer my freedom to others. 
Let's let the Spirit of God help us to realize that our entire identity bubble, the entire page, is actually as beloved child of God. And all these other words that we use, our title and our level and our accomplishments, are more like colors and textures that get added to the bubble, not bubbles in and of themselves. Another application of claiming freedom in our work might be making decisions that prioritize kingdom advancement over career advancement. For some of us, feeling stuck in patterns of external performance and seeking the approval of others might have a lot to do with macro decisions in our careers, maybe even the path that we're on. One way to discern how to move forward might be to ask how your work is impacting your relationship with God. Does your work take so much mind share that it creeps into your times of prayer or attempts to read scripture? Does it take up so much energy that impedes your ability to be in relationship with others and to serve the Lord using your gifts in the context of your faith community? Do you say no to opportunities for community or to serve because of work? If so, there may be a worship of work that is impeding the way God wired you to thrive. Are there choices you can make to get that back into alignment? When we lived in China, I was on what some might call a great career path at Gap. I was the only expat on the ground with e-commerce experience, so my responsibilities, including that of a team, were much heavier than my title suggested. Promotion came fast. But I left the company after things got launched. It might seem like a stupid career decision. On the surface, it looks like I left because my dad got sick and I was pregnant and we moved back to the States. But the truth is I'd already been talking with a friend about quitting to do social enterprise work in Shanghai because the work had taken over my whole life. We were there to build relationships, to share the gospel, and I was burned out. I share this in encouragement because I learned through that decision that God doesn't waste anything. He's aware of the colors and the textures and all the things around this identity bubble that is us as his child. The experiences I gained in that role gave me the relationships and ability to do consulting work with fashion companies looking to enter China while our kids were small and to help support our family's first few years while Current was coming to life here until it became clear it was time to move over to this ministry role full time. And that was a big wrestle too. I didn't know. This is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. The takeaway is there's discernment required in how we navigate our careers, asking God if we are working in a way that prioritizes things that will last. We are all called to steward our talents and to live with our identity as a child of God. What might God be nudging you to lay down or change today in order to claim freedom in your work? Laying something down might cost us a faster advancement or more status and means, but maybe we also thrive a little more or others will thrive more because of us, and maybe that's okay. For some here, a decision may be impending and maybe God is nudging you on that this morning. For others, you've already made big life decisions that impact work, like moving farther out and dealing with the commute so you can be rooted here in Silicon Valley. Maybe for you, it's not about making an external change. There's an internal change God is nudging you toward today. 
laying down a need to get promoted faster or to work without ceasing in a way that's binding your freedom and impacting your relationships. Maybe you're being nudged to better own your identity as a Christ follower at work. Much more on this to come next week. CT will be teaching on it and you won't want to miss it. But there is an opportunity to surface as Christians at work and to trust God with it. To invite our coworker or our boss out to pub trivia on November 5th because claiming our freedom in Christ might look like trusting him with our reputation and relationships for the sake of people we work with. I started this message with quoting sociologist Carolyn Chen on the worship of work in America and the way that professionals in knowledge centers like the Bay Area are abandoning their faith and looking to the workplace for belonging, identity, and purpose. What's fascinating about her research is she believes this trend is weakening our cities, making communities less diverse, weakening democracy and political engagement because people whose lives center around work live increasingly in homogenous bubbles. Unless we think the answer is just to flee Silicon Valley, it's clear from the research and the resonance of these themes across American society at large that you don't have to work in tech for the worship of work to have a hold on you. Silicon Valley is not an exception to the rule, just a portent for what is happening in society at large. Being here in the work culture, being salt and light, bringing hope to our coworkers really matters. It's the places where brokenness is most evident that there is also the most opportunity to redeem. And there's an exception, Chen writes. Not everyone gets pulled into the worship of work. In her research, she discovered that certain groups of people are less likely to worship work, including tech workers of all ages who belong to faith communities outside work that lay claim to their time, energy, and devotion. Tech workers who are religious stand out from the work-worshipping mainstream. Their religions give them a solid foundation, a solid foundation to build a sense of self, community, spirituality, and purpose apart from work. And their religious communities are often more diverse, both socially, racially, and socioeconomically than the ones they find at work. Social scientist language affirming what the Bible is telling us today, that the key to thriving in our work, to escaping its shackles and sense of confinement, is to find our identity, our sense of belonging, and purpose in Jesus and in our participation in gospel community. With each work decision we make to claim the freedom that Christ died to give us, we give him glory and give out his light into the world a hopeful light that reminds us and those around us that this world is not all there is. We need not be shackled by human expectations and material gain because anything that we do that is of any worth is because of what God has done in us anyway. And in that, there is truly freedom to be found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that your spirit is with us, is with us here today, with us when we're at work, with us at night and in the morning when we meet you, Lord. 
Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would meet us in whatever we are needing freedom from in our work. Meet each person here in an intimate way that only you can to help us to claim this freedom that you want us to live with and maybe even to offer to people around us. We love you, we trust you with all these things, and we lay them before you this morning. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen.